I say safe people, I mean people that have self-awareness, they have historical awareness, they have empathy and compassion, right? We need safe people who can create brave spaces where we can talk about hard things. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. My name is Nathan Foster, and my guest today is a consultant, coach, racial equity, diversity, and inclusion specialist who's worked for three decades in the financial services industry, Tina Dyer. Tina is currently a senior learning and development consultant and vice president in corporate human resources at a Fortune 50 company. She's an alum of the Renovare Institute, holds a master's degree in Christian spiritual formation and leadership, and is part of the Renovare board. Last August, Tina and I were involved in a Renovare webinar titled Creating Safe Spaces to Have Honest Conversations About Race. It was a good exchange and we covered a lot of ground as to setting up how to have conversations about race. A few days after the webinar, Tina and I began talking We both thought it would be good to go beyond talking about race in the abstract, but to actually have a conversation between ourselves. And so what follows is a little different, a candid and sometimes vulnerable conversation about one woman's experience of being a person of color in America. For me, this was a chance to listen, a simple and possible entry point to lean into the rich history of the church and the social justice tradition. When we engage in listening as a spiritual practice, we're doing so with God. As we suspend our preconceived notions and simply try and be present to the person and God. For me, when practicing the spiritual discipline of listening, I try and notice the tonal qualities and the heart behind the words And I look to use any resistance I might experience as an opportunity to prayerfully process what God might have to teach me about myself, my interactions in the world, and who I'm becoming. I walked away from this conversation encouraged and moved by her openness and found a number of themes we touched on stayed with me for days. I talked with Tina over a video call from her home in California. Tina, how do you identify racially and culturally? I am African-American. What's important to me when I think about that, many people, most people, can trace their ethnicity and heritage back to a particular location. Irish people go back to Ireland. Spanish people go back to Spain. Nigerian people go back to Nigeria. But for those of us that are descendants of the enslaved, we don't have a particular country that many of us can trace back to because of a lack of records or information available to us. Because Africa is a continent, not a country. (laughs) Right, right. So I am African-American as a way to recognize that... um, My ancestors came from a different land, but I don't have a way 
of connecting back to that, which is different from people who immigrate from another country. They have a location and place and custom and culture that they bring with them, different, right? And yet we think about a race category in this country. I'm black, right? That's the category. And if someone immigrates from an African country, they're considered black too. We don't have the same experience, but we're in the same racial category. What have been your experiences as an African-American woman? Well, where I'm at on my journey now, when I enter into these conversations, I like to disclose that I am a recovering assimilationist. Recovering assimilationist. Yes. Okay. And that's because, we'll acknowledge this as well, I'm born and raised in California. And I live in Northern California, and where I live in the city of Elk Grove, it was originally inhabited by the Miwok Plains Native people. So I want to acknowledge, you know, the people who originally stewarded this land where I now live. As I think about that, born and raised in California, but yet my people, you know, my grandparents that I'm connected to all lived in the South. So in Texas and Louisiana, where my people are from. And my grandparents' generation, they were part of that great migration out of the Jim Crow South. So I came to live in California because of the oppression that my ancestors experienced. And they wanted me to have a different experience. They wanted me to have different opportunities. Not me in particular, because they didn't know, you know about me at that time, but their um, descendants. So when I begin to think about what were their experiences that led them to make that transition, you know, I feel grateful of the sacrifices they were willing to make so that there were some types of experience they did not want me to have. And I feel grateful for that. My experience as I moved into college, the population of Black people is lower in my experience, right? So I went to college and that's the experience of being the only one or one of a few. I work in a corporate setting, the only one or one of a few. And, you know, it's just human nature to want to fit in, right? So in my socialization in California, um, I think I learned, learned from the culture, right? Who are the valuable people or, you know, what are the important people doing and how do they behave, right? And who's the model for that? So what I would say is I learned uh, white culture, and I learned to modulate myself to align with white culture and uh, worked 32 years in a corporate setting. So I've learned what's appropriate, what's acceptable. You know, um, here's an example of that would be um, my hair. So I have permed or straightened my hair since pre-puberty. It's just a part of what you do, right, so that my hair would look you know, most close to European culture. And when you say going, wanting to look professional, business-like, uh, that's what it meant to have my sh hair straightened. It wasn't good for my hair. It was a lot of work, but it was what I've done. And I've worn my hair naturally now for almost 10 years. Uh, but even when I first started into that, I make sure it was pulled in a bun, looks really professional and 
right? And I'm done with that, right? I'm <laughs> embracing my natural hair, and uh, you know, if that excludes me from certain settings, I'm okay with being excluded now. There was a time when, you know, hey, I I need the job, so I need to make my hair so I can keep the job, um, and so I've moved beyond kind of assimilating in order to fit in. So I am in have been on this journey of recovering from that and learning how to uh, embrace uh, authentically my culture in all the spaces where I'm at, right? Not shrinking and modulating for others. Matter of fact, I've said it this way. After the murder of George Floyd, I said, I'm, I am no longer willing to contort myself into a pretzel for the comfort of others at the expense of my well-being. Mm. Wow. Say, could you say that again? Uh, um, to think about the way in which George Floyd was murdered is um, still beyond my, my belief, and I don't have a box for it. But if there was ever a moment for me to recognize that maybe the strategies I've engaged in to belong are unnecessary and futile and not producing an outcome, that is glorifying to God or honoring to me as a person. I am no longer willing to contort myself into a pretzel to make others comfortable at the expense of my well-being. The emotion that statement brings up for you, can I ask what it is? Well, it's the culmination of just the daily toll of living with having to uh, pay attention and spend so much energy to things that shouldn't matter. Um, example, um, about five or so years ago, I was doing book study with a group of people. Um, we just all had the same interest in this book around um, neuroscience and trauma. And so the couple who was hosting it lived about 45 minutes away from me in a really uh, nice area, and um, but it was a predominantly white area. And, you know, wonderful people, love them, loving what we're doing together. But when I would make that drive to where they lived, when I would get about two miles, they lived in a gated community, I could feel the tension tighten in my chest. And what I was thinking about, do I have the code? Now, it's just something about me personally. I don't remember numbers. I don't remember phone numbers. I don't, I transpose numbers. So, I have to rely on tools for me to get the things that I need, you know. So the, the code to get in the gate. Is what you mean. Oh, to get in the gate. So um, when I would be driving up, I would be like, oh, no, do I have the code? I have to, will I be able to put in the code when I get there? So sometimes I, you know, would think ahead and I'd write it down and I'd have it out where I could see it. Other times it would be in my phone, and then that would mean I would be at the gate looking at my phone trying to get in. And what I didn't want, I did not want to be outside the gate in an area where I may not look like I belong. I wasn't, I was driving a car that was not uh, the envy of anyone at the time, right? <laughs> and so I could, so I can remember every time having to think about, do I have the code? Can I get in? And there was one time I got there 
and it, it didn't seem to work, you know, and then the cars behind you, the people walking, they're looking, who are you and why are you here? So one time I saw I didn't have the coat. I drove back down the street to where the shopping center was to look for it because I simply didn't want to sit there while I looked for it because that would just, it just didn't, that doesn't feel safe. You know, if I'm going into an area where there aren't a lot of people like me, I need to be professional. I need to have what I need so I can move quickly and not draw attention to myself. Now, I'm not thinking a lot of people think about that when they're going over to their friend's house to go study. Look, I travel a lot from a job, 80% travel. And my colleagues, they would travel in their jeans and tennis shoes and be very casual. I have learned that's not the right way for me to travel. I need to have business attire on, so I, I present. Some people think I look young for my age, so I need to have business attire on so that I am greeted with fitting into the box of Black professional and not whatever other box they might put me in if I don't give them all the cues. That's the box I'd like them to place me in at that moment. So I walk into a hotel to check in. I want to look. I want to be in that box. I go to rent a car. I want to be in that box. I get getting checked in at the airport. I want to be in that box. What did the TSA, right? So a lot of my energy is spent on trying to be in the right box of how people are going to see me. Sounds exhausting. So COVID and being quarantined at home hasn't been all bad for me. <laughs> so Nate, I've shared a couple examples there. So tell me, how, how does that contrast from things you pay attention to in your life experience? Completely different. <laughs> I don't think about these things. I travel wearing stretchy pants, tennis shoes, and a t-shirt. When I go to the code, I don't, you know, to enter a code somewhere. These aren't things I think about. I rarely think about my whiteness. And it sounds like in the corporate world, just living where you live, this phrase of only one or one of few it sounds like you have to think about your um, blackness a lot. Is, it, is that accurate? That would be accurate. And when you say have to think about it a lot, so I guess maybe in the same way, I don't know if it's true, I'm just thinking out loud here, but maybe in the same way that you innately don't think about it, I innately think about it. Think about it because my survival and safety is a part of it so it is hmm, it's part of my formation how different is it when um you're in, in spaces where um everybody looks like you it, it, how different how, how does that feel <laughs> um, when you ask the question i don't i've noticed my own relaxation and go oh I'll have to do all that work. It's like being off work. Being off. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm, I'm off. I don't have to do any of that. Right? There are issues of safety, issues of wanting to kind of blend in or not be, you know, uh, I, I, I called out as, you know, there's a problem here or there. Um, but then speaking the language of power, right, in terms of uh, your professional life, a lot of, would the phrase be code switching? Is that a phrase? That is the phrase. 
and to modulate, hide the parts of yourself that you think would offend. Um, and one of the ways you know and understand this is because you can tell a lot about an organization by who they hire and promote and who you see at the top. So mm -hmm. working in the corporate setting that I do, you know, we all learn by observing, right? And so when you look in an organization and there are people who look like you in the senior executive levels or in the C-suite, um, that is communicating who is valued and um, who you need to model yourself after in order to... Um, it's successful. Advance. Mm -hmm. What can white folks do to help? <laughs> I don't want. I don't want you to have to code switch when I'm talking to you. <laughs> like I don't want you. To, what do I need to do so that you can feel free to be your authentic self without having to work so hard? It's a good question. I'm not sure I have an answer, but maybe I can think out loud with you about it. Okay. When you're the only one or one of a few. So one thing is how can we have less environments where people are the only one or one of a few? What do we do in our places of being where we don't seem to have a group of different people? How, how do we continue to create that? So I just think about my own personal circle. How wide is my circle? Who does my circle, you know? So, you know, if I want to invite someone to my circle, and if they're going to be the only one or one of a few, then they're going to be different, right? Because they're one amongst a larger group. So that's one thing. The second part is cultivating relationships. So I think what brings comfort to people, whatever the differences are, is the degree to which they've developed a meaningful relationship. So not a transactional relationship, but a meaningful relationship, a connection. So if our connection is, you know, based on some transaction, especially that has this hierarchy <laughs> to it, right, that I'm the one-up person and you're the one-down person, but I'm talking about a peer Kind of connection because uh, where there's relationship bonds the differences fade away right isn't that but what uh, the scripture says in renewal there is no distinction right <laughs> and the third um which was the gift of my renovari institute to me i was the only one he's <laughs> the only african-american in my cohort and there was a couple from kenya in america we both be considered black but they are Kenyan, and this is um, total sidebar, but I uh, got to go and be with them in Kenya. Did you? This I, John, was it John and Noel? Yeah, they, yes, 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 yeah. I did. And um, my first international trip, I read this in the book cast, uh, Isabel Wilkinson. She says, now you realize, someone said this to her, there are no black people in Africa. Okay. Because that's a Western U.S construct right when i went to africa i was not black i was american yeah people are from different countries 
different places within Africa. That's how they're identified, not the color. It's all variations of color there, right? So it's not that we don't have ways of making distinction there. They just don't do it how we do it in the U.S. according to skin color. Mm-hmm. What did it feel like to be there? Oh, oh, okay. Well, first, so let me go back to my Renabari group. So only one, one of a few. But <laughs> almost from the first that I got there, I was with people who were doing their own work around the issue of race and Christianity. So they actually brought the issue up. They brought the conversation into the room. And they talked about their experience, their questions. They made the observations. So I didn't have to do the work <laughs> to represent the issue in the group. As a matter of fact, it was fabulous. It was just like, <laughs> they talked about the incongruency between politics and faith and what that meant. Do you want people to bring it up? I mean, I mean, I think there's a common cultural idea that when I'm around someone of a different race, I probably shouldn't talk about it, right? Or, ah, that might be uncomfortable, or I might say the wrong thing. Is, is it something for you personally that you, you know, when you meet someone or you're in a group that you like them to bring it up, or would you prefer them not to? Another good question without a uh, single answer. So it, it, it falls into this, if we don't talk about it, does it mean it isn't there? It's right. in the room, and we often sense it and feel it, but it isn't named, it isn't spoken about. And I think that kind of silence is really difficult. So it, I've been in that Renovari group, and the group had been completely silent. I, depending on where I am with my journey and what I'm navigating, I may or may not bring that into the conversation. But to act as if it doesn't exist um, would give me an under, give me an um, an understanding about the group. Right, I'm drawing conclusions for unwillingness to engage what what is here now. I don't want to be part of every, I'll say this, I don't want to be a part of every conversation. There's, I think there's some level of um, learning <laughs> and exposure and awareness that you get to do on your own and I don't need to be a part of it. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it, it, it's asking an emotional cost of you, right? I mean, yes. yeah. Yeah, I don't want to be the access point for your for someone's work that I don't have a relationship with, right, you know, mm -hmm. to have to explain the history of the country to, you know, uh, you know, you know, where I feel like it's my responsibility to help you, someone else, be aware of the issues you face. So I think what was represented in that, in my experience, in my cohort, is that people were well aware of history and other things. And so this was a part of their conversation had I been present or not. It wasn't about me as a person. So people doing their own work, learning their own, right? And and then being willing to ask some of the questions collectively of the group or that, um, that did that make it feel like a safe space for you or a space where you could be more yourself? 
Yeah, this is this is how I would say it, right? We need more safe people. And when I say safe people, I mean people that have self-awareness, they have historical awareness, they have empathy and compassion, right? We need safe people who can create brave spaces where we can talk about hard things. So not only that doing their work, but brave and courageous enough to bring the conversation into the room. These conversations need to happen. We're living the consequences of our inability to have conversations. So I lost track. That was the Rinabari group. I took you on some other tangent about... I asked about being in Africa. What was that like for you? Now, I, I have no explanation for this. Now, how can you land on a plane, get off the plane, to be somewhere you've never been before, you don't know the language, and feel relaxed? And... And know nothing but just, I don't know how to explain that. I just, my soul felt relaxed in a way that didn't make sense from what I've known uh, about life. And it was, I've never had this experience to look all around me and see all shades of brown people all around me. I've just not, you know not had that experience ever in my life. So we were about, I think I'd been there about three days. And I looked out the window and I said, wow, there's a white person. And they said, oh, they're probably coming from the airport. (laughs) And I was like, I hadn't realized for three days, I hadn't seen a white person. Now I imagine as I'm saying this story, and I mean, and I feel all this energy and go, how novel that was, right? Like most people in this country can say that is a commonplace for them about black people, right? Like that's their life experience. I hadn't thought about that other side of that until just this moment. But that's not my experience. I don't go any day. Not been my lived reality in my life ever. Every time you walk out the door, you're aware. I live in America. <laughs> my experience here. So it's helpful for me um, being in Kenya because what I was able to see that as an African-American, I have been living under a particular narrative about African-American people, about myself, about what society hierarchy looks like and all of that. And when I was an African, I could see it's a narrative. It's simply a narrative. It's not true. The narrative serves a purpose, but the narrative only has the power that I give it and how I acquiesce to it. What's this phrase? Law and order. <laughs> it's <laughs> laws and orders, laws and policies and rules, right? To maintain a social order subtext of law and order. It's the policies that establish privilege, power, access, and resources to maintain a particular social order. That's the systemic racism. What do you think would help rewrite the narrative? That's interesting. Um, I hear um, those words your dad wrote, I see a people. (laughs) And I think about um, Dallas 
vision intention means, right? So I think that's the challenge we face right now because I don't know in this country, I think people are reacting to the possibility of another vision of what the country looks like that looks different than what it's been. So can't even, not even willing to try to see that vision of something different. How do issues of, of faith and church play into some of these issues? I would hope that, you know, Christ followers would, would be the people that paint that vision. I remember when Charlottesville happened, you know, um, and you saw protesters and police. And I remember having the thought, well, where are your people? Where are we? Seems like we should be right in the middle of that conversation, right in the middle in between that, and being able to model, you know, life together with different, all different people with a faith that has answers for what loving one another looks like, what loving one looks like. It's not to say they weren't there. They, they, I think I've heard some stories of people that were there, but they, they don't make the news. What do you want white folks to know about being black in America, or being African American? I want white people to access their own racial narrative. Engaging in this conversation requires you know, in my opinion, and from people that I'm reading and, and learning with, is that we all have a place in the conversation. But our place in the conversation comes through our own narrative and story. And so when we think about race in America, white is a race. And one of the activities we've done um, is um, understanding your own racial autobiography. What was your very first understanding, exposure, or racial awareness, awakening. How old were you? Who were you with? What happened? And then think about your life, you know, your early years. What was the community around you? What did you learn and absorb from your culture? What has been your racial formation? School experiences. What were the messages you heard? How did you, because until Every person can access themselves in the narrative, see themselves in the story. We don't have awareness of what's happening and our role in it. So, you know, in the same way that you can listen to someone else's story, you can glean some things from that, but we really need your voice because when we see, when white people see the history of the country, the, the narrative and how that's impacted their life, how that shaped their beliefs, their thinking, that's what needs to be in the conversation. Their beliefs. So, you know, if we believe that, you know, I'm trying to think of a belief here, um, you know, that, hey, I've earned everything that I've had. I've hadn't had life easy, right? Um, so other people that don't have, they haven't worked hard enough. That's your belief. So then what I would invite you to do is to interrogate that belief. So what's the history? Um, where did you live? And how did you come to live there? Right? Because just as I said, my people migrated from the South <laughs> um, to California. That's how I came to live in California. And I also acknowledged 
there were some people who lived in California before my ancestors. And what's their story? Would you believe this? So I learned it was the Miwok Plains people who lived here when I became curious about that. And then as I became curious about it, there is a Miwok Plains Park about a quarter mile from where I lived. I never knew that. I never saw that. It's been there. They have a center where I can go on native land and learn about how the people who lived here. It was here. It's been here all along. I just learned about it this year, but it's been present all along. So when we learn our story, how did I come to live in a place I lived in? And who lived here before me? And what was their story? And then we think about, um, you know, our parents' story, right? I find we have conversations that go from people being enslaved to civil rights. We don't often have the story about reconstruction. What we see in one generation that people who were enslaved were doing well. They were holding seats in political office. They had built communities. They had they, they were thriving. We don't talk about what happened when there was a discomfort with that progression and that success. It might be a caption in a history book. It might not be there at all. Right. So sometimes we'll learn more of the story and what's happened right in the space where we lived, where we work, right? Um, after Reconstruction, people were to be given land so that they could build a life. Well, actually, they were given land, but it was rescinded after an election. And when people were emancipated from slavery, you know, slaveholders were paid reparation. So how do you pay reparation for the enslaver? I mean, you don't provide land for the enslaved. I mean, these are some of the things that, well, it would make sense why for generations forward, People would have land, they would have inheritance to pass down. And yes, when they had the land, they worked hard on the land. But there were some people who were drove, driven from the land and allowed there. And then you have people who were enslaved who were limited to where they could live. They weren't allowed to live anywhere they chose. They were regulated, right? Red line to live in certain areas. I mean, so so it all connects, right? Who Who lived here first and how others came to live here? And what we see happening today and the opportunities, it's not, they're not, it's, there's a fine line, there's a narrative that runs all the way through. And so it's our duty for us all to learn the, the narrative. But here's, here's what happens. If we don't operate from a single narrative, you can see why we have these various positions. But we, we in my opinion, we ought to be able to agree on the history of what occurred. <laughs> Good starting point. We could start there. Then we can begin to talk about um, maybe some of my beliefs are there because it's what I was taught, but it's not consistent with what the history is. And maybe if I learn history, it might expand how I see other people's experience. I might have, you know, this is what I love about Jesus. He deals with each of us in light of our stories. You know. You might meet me, Nate, like on the end of my journey right here, and you can go, mm, that looks strange. Mm, wonder what that's about, right? But Christ deals with us. He's ancient of days. 
He knows our whole story. He deals with us in light of our stories. And I think that's what we have to learn to do with each other. We need to deal with each other in light of our stories and experiences. Well, we have that responsibility to learn our own stories and experiences. It will help us have conversation with one another. What I'm hearing is that these things are connected. I mean, the historic and and just as you were talking a, a minute ago, it, it just kind of snapped for me. That's why home ownership is so important for people of color, right? This background, this history. And if I'm not aware of the narrative, all right, my own narrative, then I'm going to, I'm going to miss that. Right. And I work in an industry where you can determine risk factors for the loan, right? Like the, is yeah, this a, for the loan or right. So if you haven't owned a home before, that's a risk factor. So I can charge you more. And if you live in a certain county that we associate with higher crime or lower uh, wages because of, right, we can charge you more because you might be less likely to pay your house. But by the time you create the criteria, then those that have not had the opportunities and are living in the most under-resourced situations actually pay more than everybody else, right? Because if you live in a fluent area and you've had a history of income, then you pay the least expense rate. There is so much here and there's so many different things we could talk about. In the next, let's just say five years in America, if you could make a change right? The magic wand. Like, what would you like to see happen in terms of uh, race issues in America? No one's ever asked me that question before. And there's too many things flooding my mind, but I'm... (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So I think I would want a single narrative (laughs) about the history of our country and the contributions of all people here. Um, to be taught in throughout the schooling system. And that's important because children, I, I think what other countries have done is they've taught the history so they can grow people who know the history. We've, we've never done that. So It's like you can't heal until it's been acknowledged? Is yes. that? Yes. Yeah. And so then that would be the, so this is, I'm thinking of structural things that we need to do um, to create something different. Um, what other countries have done is they've been able to have, you know, like South Africa, race, uh, reconciliation, Germany as well. So I think we need some truth and reconciliation in the U.S. And I think it needs to cl- include some form of reparations. Now, people don't like the way just using the R word. That really makes people uncomfortable. Um, but there used to be a time... People had all these reasons why it couldn't happen, even though we've done it. You know, we did it for slaveholders, paid reparations. We've done it for those that were um, discriminated against, um, Chinese Americans who were discriminated against. Um, we've done it for Holocaust survivors, right? And Japanese yeah. internment camps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So minimal, but yeah. yeah. So thank you for helping me keep. Um, keep my, what's going through my mind straight, right? 
And right now we see how many government, we see how we can implement a government program on the turn of the dime and print money to solve all kinds of issues, right? So, so first, rehaul our education from infancy throughout college years uh, to be an inclusive, an accurate and inclusive history. Um, so just, just, to, just to, yeah, anyway, I was going to say just to rub it in, I would change it to Native People's Day from Columbus Day. Right? So just to be accurate with history, um, that's education part. And then um, truth and reconciliation that goes beyond a pledge, but an acknowledgement of what we've created, the disparities and the inequality that we've created that would move toward the dismantling, you know, of the prison industrial complex, you know, just other things. Right. But that telling the truth and then following it up with action to undo some of the harm uh, that has been uh, done. And then third, um, we teach everybody the skills to talk about this. We teach them how to have dialogue. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for the question because when I think about, you know, what's God's invitation to me in this, uh, that's what I'm passionate about is learning alongside people how to learn how to talk about this. And I've been practicing that for a long time. And um, that's, that's really what I'm passionate about, helping people to be able to talk about this. I'm aware in our conversation that you've had to go to some difficult places in, in, in responding to my questions. Um, how is this conversation? Well, one, thank you. Legitimately, thank you. Um, it means a lot to me. How has this conversation been for you? Nate, I'm grateful to, you know, just explore uh, these ideas in friendship. How has this conversation been for me? What's good for me in conversations like this is I am getting the practice of bringing my authentic voice. It is my spiritual practice uh, in these matters. And so it allows me um, an opportunity to do that. And I have to keep pushing myself to do that because I'm fighting against the assimilationist formation that I've been shaped in. So as I say, that's how it's good for me, <laughs> right? Help me to, with my spiritual practice of using my voice authentically. How it's difficult for me is that I'm one person just trying to encourage others to follow the invitation the Lord has given to them. And I don't represent the views for all African-American people, for all African-American women, that we are not monolithic group. There's a lot of complexity and texture. You could talk to another person and they might see things completely different. Mm -hmm. I'm Tina. <laughs> They're African-American. And it would not mean that something was wrong. Is that part of the extra burden that people will look to you to speak for everybody? That's a concern, maybe. I don't think I try to hold that concern because I, I definitely am learning that, um, you know, in everything there's God's part and there's my part. And in this, there's my part and there's the other person's part. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm, my part is to show up authentically, speak the truth in love, just be transparent where I'm at. 
and how that lands and what the other person does with it. I'm going to leave that between them and the Holy Spirit, but the invitation is that if something is said that is jarring, confusing, you don't believe, or whatever that might be, that's the invitation for them, and they get to choose. Those are great, I think, great conversations to talk with the Lord about. Lord, I don't understand that. Help me to, I don't I don't get that. Well, what does that mean? When I ask him those questions, I, I get tutored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Generously, graciously tutored. <laughs> those are good questions. Yep. Tina, thank you so much. Nate, thank you. And that was Tina Dyer. You can access the webinar Tina and I did, as well as others, on the Renovare website under the Groups and Gatherings tab. And under the Podcast tab, you can find a new podcast channel I've been a part of. It's a roundtable discussion with two other people working with your questions. It's called Friends in Formation, and I'm loving the way it's coming together. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast, a podcast made possible by donations from people like you. You can support this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We love hearing your questions or thoughts. You can email podcast at renovare.org or tweet at renovare. This podcast is produced by Brian Morcon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Other music is by Lee Rosevere. Thanks for listening. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.